Thanks, Kate. And thanks, Darren, for being uh, ready to step in, mate, at the, uh, the right moment there. Uh, we're going to continue our series in David tonight with a focus on this psalm, Psalm 51. I'm going to ask that God would help us uh, to get the most of it. And so uh, let's pray uh, together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, for this word, for this song that's been preserved. I pray, Father, that tonight you'd make it live for us as your Holy Spirit is here. We ask your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I, uh, I tried this this morning and uh, didn't work out very well as my opening illustration, so just full confession uh, to start off. Uh, does anyone know who these guys are? Sorry? <laughs> but good try, mate. Ruby? Joe and Chip. See, this is why it didn't work, because Ruby's in my house. She's my daughter. Nobody else knows outside of our house. Anyway, what these guys are into, uh, they, they, they run a program called Fixer Upper, where they take old homes and they renovate them and turn them into beautiful, lovely things that everyone wants to buy. It's fantastic. And for whatever reason, my wife has introduced me to this, and I have got into it. It's actually quite cool. Why, why do we like these things? Uh, I think the idea of moving from a wrecked thing to a thing made right is profoundly attractive. It's why the block is such a big deal in, uh, in Australia when it's on. Well, that and watching crazy, stupid people knock houses up. But, but the idea is that you take something broken and you fix it and you make it whole again. And I actually think we like that. And so this idea of broken things being restored, that's what tonight's message is about. That's what we're going to find uh, in uh, this psalm, Psalm 51. And we're going to look in the Bible, and you guys know uh, that the Bible isn't just one book, it's actually a library of books, and at every service someone's been able to tell me how many books there are in the Bible. Does anyone know? Quick and quick. Well done. 66. Fantastic. Uh, So it's a library of books. There are 66 books in here, and one of them is the Book of Psalms. And the Book of Psalms, uh, there are 150 chapters in the Book of Psalms. It's the book that you'll open to if you go, what's in my Bible today? Right in the middle, you'll find the book of Psalms. And Psalms is the songbook of the people of Israel. So it's got 150 different songs. There are songs for rejoicing. There are songs for lamenting. There are songs when you're angry. There are songs when you're thankful. Basically, there is a song for each and every occasion. It's a songbook. And all of those songs are prayers. They're prayers directed to God. They anticipate that there's someone on the end of the phone. You don't just offer your thanksgiving into space, you're assuming that God is there. And so there's, there's songs that are prayers. But in the world around us, there are some people who have no need of prayer, people that don't need to pray. And the people who don't need to pray, first of all, are atheists. This makes sense, doesn't it? Atheists. They have no God, and so there's no need for praying, is there? Because for them, there is no one on the end of the phone. And the only, only problem I have with atheists is that they talk about the God who isn't there a lot. I kind of figure if you have no God, that's fine. Just continue trundling along. But it's very important for them all of a sudden to make sure that everybody else has no God as well. So that's one group, atheists. They won't pray. That makes sense. But there's another group of people who won't pray. The apathetic. The people who kind of figure that they're all right. They're doing okay. And uh, this is most Australians that I meet. Uh, How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm a pretty good person. And I know that I'm a pretty good person because I'm not as bad as that person. Do you notice, Tom, I missed you? Okay, so I didn't say I'm not as bad as Tom. Um, 
our, our kind of working out that we're good people is based on finding someone in our family, in our workplace around us, who isn't as bad as us. And what that lends us to is to becoming a bit self-righteous. And the self-righteous people have no need for a God. They don't need a God because they're doing okay. Thank you very much. They're all right. God has something to say to the self-righteous, or more particularly, Jesus has something to say to the self-righteous. And I think you'll like it. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus uh, speaks to, uh, if you have a look with me, in Luke chapter 18, and I'm going to read verses 9 to 14. In Luke chapter 18, uh, it says this, to some who are confident of their own righteousness, in other words, a whole bunch of Australia, to those who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. Now, if you're not well-versed in the ancient world, you don't know that you're supposed to go, oh, Pharisee, good guy, he's working hard to be righteous. Tax collector, boo, we don't like them. Okay? Does anyone like tax collectors? I think if you're wondering whether I like tax collectors or not, think about parking ticket inspectors. Does anyone like them? Okay. So when we say Pharisee, you're going... Yay, happy smiley face. And when we say tax collector, you should all be going, boo. Okay, so here we go. I'll read it again. Uh, So two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Good work. You're doing really great. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. That's pretty good, isn't it? But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Are you ready for the surprise? I tell you, said Jesus, that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Do you see this? It's really surprising. The people who big note themselves, who think that they're good enough, God's going to humble. But the people who recognize that they need God, God loves. And I want to tell you, God loves the heart, the humble heart that calls out for mercy. And this is is the heart of Psalm 51, which we're going to look at tonight. As Kate pointed out to us, Psalm 51 is written by David. And if you've been part of the series with us, we've been seeing that David was far from righteous, wasn't he? Last week, we saw that King David, the ruler of Israel, thousand years before Jesus, King David coveted, he stole, he committed adultery, he lied, and he murdered. That's all five of the last five Ten Commandments. That's a pretty tragic account. He's profoundly flawed. But, as we saw last week, he now knows it. He heard from Nathan that he had sinned and he was grieved. He was grieved because sin has its consequences. And you remember last week we we put all these dominoes up. When they're in a nice row, they all fall neatly. When they're all scattered around like that, you push one domino and all of a sudden you've got random dominoes falling. Sin has chaotic consequences. We don't even know what the impacts will be. David saw the impact personally 
And he also saw it in his family, including the tragic reading that Darren brought to us, where his son died. Sin has tragic consequences. And what we're going to do is we're going to see what someone who comes face to face with sin does with that deep desire for forgiveness, for mercy. Now, I asked this morning with no luck, does anyone here like English when they're at school? Did anyone like English when they're at school? Okay, some of you did. Hardly anyone. I think I had one hand at 10.30. Put up your hand if you don't like English. Go, great, fantastic. All right, well, you're going to hate what I do next. Fantastic, I'm excited about that. Well, I want to show you, um, when you write a song, you you can be quite thoughtful. When you write a poem, you can be even more thoughtful. And I, I did some looking at this, this poem, this song, and I want to show you there's actually a structure in it that's really interesting in the first nine verses. A number of these verses have a pair. What I mean by that is that this verse and that verse have the same theme, and this verse and this verse have the same theme, and then this verse stands out. When you structure it like this, this actually becomes the key to this first section. And what I want us to do is have a look at these pairs and then get to the key verse in this first section. Now, has anyone had this moment? Uh, you write on the whiteboard and you realize that it's a permanent marker. Yes? Anyone done this? Okay. Little tragedy, isn't it? Little tragedy happens. Incidentally, I hate all red markers on whiteboards, but it's much worse when it's a permanent marker. As soon as it's on the whiteboard, okay, what do you want to do? Get it off. When it's a permanent marker, it's not going to come off. It wants to stay on there, doesn't it? You go, get rid of my, particularly when it's red, get rid of my horrible sadness from this board. Hate it. That is what is happening for David. Have a look at verse 1, Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? We're so familiar with this that we think it's perfectly normal to go, God, wipe out my, have mercy on me, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot it out. Because our God is, we're just so used to him being lovely, aren't we? And merciful. What if you had a God that wasn't merciful? What if you had a God who wasn't interested in your sin? So you go, God, I'm feeling terrible. And you come before him and you go, God, have mercy. And he goes, I don't care, suffer in it. Be terrible, wouldn't it? You see, we're so saturated in the Christian God, the God of the Bible, that we think it's perfectly normal to come before him and say, of course you have unfailing love. Of course you have great compassion. Of course you'll hear me when I pray. The the, the matching verse, the one that's down the end of this nine-verse section, says this, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. His approach, David comes before God because he's confident of God's character. God's character gives him confidence. I know what you're like, God. You're a loving God. You're a compassionate God. And so I can come before you. Does anyone's car look like this? Oh, yeah, I see some hands going up. Now, in my house this afternoon, my kids washed both of our cars. Happy days. Send them my way. That's right. Form an orderly queue. Uh, I'm delighted that it doesn't look like that, but it'll, it'll get back to that pretty soon. 
And I love it when somebody scratches, wash, wash me onto your car. That's the ultimate insult, isn't it? We're feeling dirty. I just want to be washed. Get me clean. Well, again, when it comes to sin, we know what it is to feel dirty. How do we get ourselves clean? It's a bucket and sponge for a car. How do we get ourselves clean? Well, what, what can be told to you is you need to do penance. So you sinned in this way. You can get rid of it by praying a number of prayers. Do penance. Work it off. Or maybe you've been told you need to be really placid. That's my P word for meditation. Okay, meditation. Go and meditate somewhere. Focus on yourself until you've eliminated your sense of self, and then you'll be free. Or placation. What we're going to do is we're going to sacrifice something to God. I'm going to go and take something costly from me, and I'm going to kill it or break it or hand it over or get rid of it, and that will help God get rid of my sin. The angry God will be turned away. Or, or maybe we just want to do some purchasing. I think none of, as Australians, we don't generally get into the rest of it. But retail therapy is good, isn't it? Yeah? I'm feeling really bad in my heart. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to click on the internet and I'm going to buy some stuff. And that'll be great. No? Just me? No. This is one of the ways that we want to feel better. It doesn't remove sin, but it makes us put a little band-aid on our open wound of sin. I want you to see it's none of those things here. H- have a listen to what David says in this next pair of verses. In verse 2, he says, Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. In verse 7, he says, Cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Can you see that? Now, what I want you to see is, and this is the major difference between Christianity and every other religion. In the whole world. Ready for this? Pay attention. This is all about what you do. Do penance. Do purchasing. Duplication. It's you doing something. I want you to see how passive this is. God, you wash me. You cleanse me. Can you see the difference? It's not us working to get our sin away. It's God coming and graciously in his mercy washing us clean. That's a huge difference. Do or done. God says, I will make it done for you. You won't have to do it. It's not DIY, not do it yourself, but done by God. Now, does anyone know what uh, this thing is here? Sorry? It's a HUD. Fantastic. HUD is what, mate? Heads up display. They're in fighter planes. And you have a heads up display so that there is some information that's always before you, always in front of you. The information that's in front of you is your virtual horizon. It says your speed. It says your altitude. And should there be uh, someone that you don't like coming in front of you, a little red thing will come and tell you where they are as well. The idea is that this is information that's helpful that is always before you. That isn't David's problem. David's problem is that he has information that's always before him that isn't helpful, that condemns him, that leaves him feeling terrible. Have a look at verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Do you see this? And this problem that David has has been there for a while. Have a look at verse 5 in the matching verse. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. See, for David, his sin is a 
a sickness and a burden. It weighs him down and it's always before him. The incredible thing about this is that I can see you and I won't be able to know that you have a burden of sin. I can look at you, but you looking out in the world have this always before me. This is my sin. It grieves me. It makes me feel guilty. It's always before me. And that problem is a problem. You remember last week we saw that sin, sin's arena is the heart. And I can't see your heart from outside. Sin is our general disposition. What does that mean? Well, I said to the guys this morning, okay, we've got a physical challenge. You ready for the challenge? Participation time, church. I want you to come back next week having completed this challenge. In the next week, I want you to not sin. Is that okay? Who's up for it? We won't sin next week, the whole of next week. Does anyone reckon they're going to come back next week and be 100% clean? It's impossible. Good answer. It's impossible. I'll probably trip up on my conviction to be sinless about 9.30 tonight. Pretty much done. It'll it'll be be about then because then I'll be a bit cranky and tired maybe. But it's amazing, isn't it? It's our general disposition. Do kids need to be taught to lie? Parents? They don't. Where did they get this special knowledge from? didn't come from outside. It came because we have a genetic disease. The genetic disease is sin. You remember Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sin, and they pass on to their children a general disposition to sin. They will sin. And you and I sin. We have a genetic disease. And guess what? Here's the terrible outcome. It's fatal. Our sin is going to cost us our life. And it's terrible. That's God's declaration. Sin says God says that sin, the one who sins, is the one who will die. So what's sin? A general disposition, a genetic disease. It's God's declaration that we're not living right. Well, let's get to that key verse. What was hiding in the midst of all those pairs is verses 4 to 5. Have a look with me at verses 4 to 5. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Actually, just verse 4. So here it is. It says that the center point is that we've sinned against God, God only. But if we've been paying attention over the last little while, that doesn't sound right, does it? Against you only have I sinned. Because we could rack up some other people that we would say David sinned against, wouldn't we? If we thought about this, we would say, well, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah, her husband? What about their son? What about the soldiers that died with Uriah? What about David's sons and daughters that saw their dad do this terrible thing? What about the nation that had a king that went astray? So how can it be that he says, against you only have I sinned? How does that make any sense? Has anyone here been lost before? Has anyone been lost with their significant other? No? As in husbands and wives, partners, guys, girls. Have you been lost with your significant other? What happens when we're lost with our significant other? Harmony breaks out in the car. Is that right? Harmony just spontaneously comes out. Oh, love, I'm sure you're right. That was the ex. You've done correctly. Yes. That's not what happens, is it? It's this way. No, it's not. It's this way. You always, you never. 
Great statements, incidentally. You always, you never. Fantastic. How do we resolve such disputes? What do we do to resolve such disputes these days? Sorry? Yeah, Google Maps. Okay, all right. That's how we go. We need an objective person who knows where we actually are. Some satellites in orbit talk to our phone, and they'll tell us where we actually are. And they're objective, and they're outside ourselves. You see, without God, you and I have our own standards. We work out what's right and wrong, and we we do all the different things that we do. And if there's no God, all you have is a fight in a car. When there is an objective outside, all of a sudden we have sin. We have sin. We need to have somebody point out to us what the true north is, where goodness and rightness are. And we can see this in our world. Our world has no idea where goodness and rightness are, do they? They're utterly lost. And so we need God to come and tell us what's right and wrong. We need God to be the true judge. And this is why, not because David didn't sin against others, but because he sinned against the ultimate standard, who is God. And so he's right in saying, against you only have I sinned, because the ultimate sin, the pinnacle sin, is to have sinned against God. He goes through all of that, and then he makes some pleas to God. Because of God's character, David feels comfortable asking God for things. Now, I I think this this is the most pure thing I could think of when it comes to pure. What's pure? Snowflake's pure, isn't it? It's just water arranged beautifully. Okay, fantastic. That is really, really pure. I want you to see what David longs for for himself in verse 10. He says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. David says, I've got a stained heart, and I want you to change it for me. I want you to create anew something beautiful in me. Create in me a pure heart as white as snow. And then he says, I want you to do something in my spirit. Clean me up inside and make me steadfast in my spirit. Give me a steadfast and solid heart so that I won't go again in the wrong path. In verse 11, he has a plea to God, a a plea about presence. Presence is this, not just present gift. Presence is when I'm hanging out with my friend and I love them so much. I know them so much. We're so comfortable together, we can sit down and not say anything. Do you you know this? You don't need to talk. You can just sit and be because they're so precious to you. Their presence is a blessing. For David, this is God. And he's worried about his sin. And so he says in verse 11, Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. David longs for God to not leave him. He wants to be assured of the personal presence of God with him. And he says, God, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Your Holy Spirit empowers me and assures me of your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Then in verse 12, we see our our fixer-upper, our restoration program. Have a look at verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David says, your salvation brings me joy. I want it back again. Bring the joy back again. And, in its, and, and when you do that, give me a willing spirit, a noble spirit to sustain me. Create, do not cast, restore. Three pleas from David 
for the heart of the people. And he says, well, here's what will happen. God, if you do that, have a look at verse 13. If you do that, two things will follow. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. See, David says, if I find this, if I can find a clean heart, I can't wait to tell others about it. Because you can't wash it clean anywhere else. If I find it from you, God, I'm going to teach other people this beautiful truth that you have given to me. There are good consequences of salvation, and they should be shared. He says in uh, two matching uh, little sections here to follow, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. You can see he knows his sin. He did know he sinned against the others. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are my saviour, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. Saving leads to singing, not sinning. Do you see the difference? Saving leads to singing. It'll, it'll result in praise to God. And then this other bit makes more sense. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings and uh, offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. What he says is, prosper this city and proper sacrifices will be offered. It's going to be great. But what, what needed to change? Why did they need to make their sacrifices pleasing again? There's an amazing bit in, uh, in Isaiah chapter 1 I want to read to you. But before we do that, I, I just want to show you this, um, this. This is the tomb of Jesus in Jerusalem. Now, has anyone been there? Okay. Is it a quiet place? No. It's a noisy place, right? It's the very antithesis of holy. It's become a trampling place. Surges of tourists just trample through this place. Have a listen to what it says in Isaiah chapter 1. When you appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop, stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. Later on, he says, I hate your festivals. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. And God says to his people, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the cause of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. See, what God saw was his people had turned into religion without relationship. What they were doing was they were coming into the building, maybe coming to church. They sat here, they sang the songs, and then they went home again. And God said, if you don't bring your heart, then being physically in this building does not matter. If you don't relate to me, it means nothing. So all your sacrifices are rendered worthless if you don't have a relationship with me. We're going to see what God does want from his people. And to do that, I need someone to identify this statue for me. Who, who's this? Does anyone know? Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein. Uh, when uh, he was overthrown, they pulled down this massive statue of him. And the word that we're going to use tonight, there's a word that we're going to focus on called broken. And when I went and searched it through, it turned up in a number of times where people were told to smash altars. Smash altars. 
Here's a famous statue being smashed, and I want you to see what God wants to have smashed. Have a look with me at verses 16 and 17. This is the, uh, the end of our accounting for this psalm. Verses 16 and 17 say this, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You take no pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. See, what God is looking for is the person who has had their heart smashed by their sin. Their heart smashed by their sin, but turning to him. Turning to him. David can't be who he will become without being smashed by sin. God could have given him all the victories in the world and he would never have become the man who he was without being smashed by sin. The upside for this, the tragic upside, but the great upside, is that we need to embrace brokenness with restoration. It means God hasn't wasted your sin if you'll turn to him. We need to say, God, you know my brokenness. I need you to restore me. And when he does, we'll be made better. Do you remember this guy? Have mercy on me, a sinner. Do you remember him, the tax collector? When we're broken down, God will build us up. When we're too proud, we've got no time for the mercy of God. Discover it afresh. Discover it afresh. When we don't know it, we'll repeat religion again and again and again. We'll have to keep rubbing our consciences into something. You will purchase up a storm. You will burn incense. You will do penance. You'll do any number of things again and again and again because they won't, they won't set you free. They can't set you free. There's only one place that you can go to get set free. And uh, there's a, a beautiful verse in, in, in Hebrews chapter 10. I'd read the whole of it, but I, I shouldn't. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, it says this, For by one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. It only need to happen once. On the cross, Jesus paid the price once fully and completely to wipe out our sin. You can come to him, and if you beg for mercy, the grace of God will be yours. You can find forgiveness. That was one for you at the cross. So what does this psalm teach us? It teaches us that we are saved from guilt, from sin and death. It tells us that we're saved by washing, blotting and renewing. And we know that's powered by the cross. But we're not just saved from, we're saved for. And this is a beautiful list. The psalm tells us we're saved for joy for praise and for proclamation. If we get what God has done for us, then giving the message of new life will be the thing that we'll want to do because you can't find it anywhere else. This psalm teaches us that in the midst of sin and sorrow, you can have hope. You can have hope. There's a purpose in our salvation and it should be that we can't keep it to ourselves. Well, I want to finish by encouraging you to dive into these beautiful truths. Cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Let me pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beauty and the joy of your forgiveness. Father, perhaps tonight there are some who have never asked for your forgiveness, and I pray that they would. For those of us who know it, help us not to exchange this great assurance for anything less in this world. Father, wash us clean, make us new, create in us a pure heart, O God. Amen. Okay, uh, that's a bit of Psalm 51. Uh, we're going to have a Q&A time, which you probably weren't prepared for, but if you would like to ask any questions to follow up that, please do. And then we're going to finish up. Uh, are there any questions from the... Oh, Callum's got a question. Yeah. You don't have a question. Fantastic. But you do have a mate who you dobbed in who's getting you back. Is that right? Great. Excellent. Lauren's got a question. Thanks, Lauren. Oh, thanks, mate. Lauren. Um, just going back to um, surely I was sinful at birth. Yeah. Um, and you desired faithfulness even in the womb. Yeah. So speaking about that with my seven and eight-year-old and even some of the older girls last week, um, it's a little bit hard to teach. Um, it's hard for me to conceive that these beautiful little babies are sinful. Is yeah. there a – can you be helpful in explaining it uh, in another way apart from it's just a – genetic disposition. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, So here's what I'd say. Here's what I'd say. So God loves everyone. Good start. God made us for fellowship with him. God's son Jesus has died that we can be made right with him. God is holding out forgiveness to all. And yet for each and every one of us, there is a, a desire to seek self before God that I don't need to learn anywhere. And when I ask where does that come from, the Bible tells me that I'm stained by sin. It doesn't mean that I have children who never do anything right. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love them. It doesn't mean that he won't help them. It doesn't mean that he won't save them. But it does mean that they have a disposition, a preponderance, a choice, a default position to think self before God. And I see that. And I experience that in my own heart. I don't always and naturally put others before myself. I don't always and naturally seek God before me. So the difficulty is, hey, if I say, everyone, you're a sinner, and all the kids are sinners, I don't think that's helpful, however. What we're seeing is, it's not something I learnt at 13. It existed prior. And so the hard truth is, that we have sin before we know that we need to learn. Where did it come from? It's part of our inheritance. Is that helpful? Come back at me though, Lauren. What, what makes it so hard? Tell, tell me why it was so hard. Um, not so hard, but I, uh, if I can explain something to a seven-year-old, I can explain it to a, someone who is, is not a believer. Um, so, yeah, how would you explain that to an SRE class? Yeah, so to, to the SRE class, I, I would say I, I'd give them the sin challenge. Try and live perfectly without choosing yourself first for the next week entirely. Oh, you can't. Why can't you? Is it because you're not trying hard enough? Now, this is, this is a really dangerous line, and if we're not careful, we can teach this. You just need to all try harder not to sin. 
We're going to fail at that. Why? Because there's something deep in us which is not right. That's the sin problem. So, so I would say I look at a world that tells me that's true. I experience a world inside myself that tells me that's true. And the Bible explains how that's true. Now, it doesn't make it easy. But I would never say that to the Scripture class without telling them that they're loved and that the God who says that our bad behaviour is sin is the same God who says, I love you and my son died for you. So if you taught half the lesson and not the other half, I think we would have had a poor lesson. Does that sound all right? Okay. Follow up. Yeah, Peter. Didn't Adam and Eve supposed to last forever, live forever? Yes. And they died because of their sin? That's correct. That's why the children that are born got to die because of Adam and Eve's sin. Yeah, absolutely right. Straight. Yep, absolutely right. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Peter. Follow up on that, maybe. Yeah, Alec. At the beginning of the psalm, David says that he knows that God will forgive him because of his steadfast love and his great compassion. Well, he doesn't, he doesn't say, well, I know, but he, he has enough boldness to ask God. Yeah. So he has boldness to ask. Do you think he asks thinking that he's going to get a good decision? Or do you think this is... Like if he knows the Ten Commandments and he's just blown at least five of them... Yes, at least five. Um, you know, and he hasn't listened to what Moses said, you know, choosing life and doing, and then you'll live long in the land. Yeah. What's he hanging on to, I guess? Yeah, well, here's the thing. Uh, if God's a vending machine, I put my coins in and God owes me. Right? This is why we kick vending machines when they don't give us our, our chip packet, isn't it? Right? I put my money, give me my money, because we feel ripped off. God isn't a vending machine. And so we can come before him, but he doesn't owe us anything. I can put in my request, but God isn't obligated to give it back to me. Okay? So here's the wonderful thing about mercy. I can only plead for it. Yeah? Mercy is the gift of the one in the position of power. It's not something that you can demand from the other. Are you with me? So you can't say, give me mercy. Do you see how that equation's wrong? It's flat on your face, pouring out your heart, going, God, please have mercy. And so I think David knows enough to know that God could be merciful. And he sees enough in God's character to know to ask. But God isn't obligated to do it. We find in Jesus how he can offer it to us. But it's always a plea and a request. And anyone who thinks that God owes them mercy has failed in the start. Does that make sense? Yeah, great. Anything else? Probably not. Well, let's finish there. Uh, thanks, guys. I, I hope you find that encouraging. I I'm blown away that David, with all of the terrible things that we've seen in his life, gets to come before God and say, God, please keep me in the team. And wonderfully, because of God's grace, he does. Uh, I'm going to ask Michelle to come up and tell us what to do with our Care and Connect cards, and then we're going to sing our final song. <laughs>